0: Tell me the story of the church at Antioch, uh, the most famous city you've never heard of, or, well, you just heard it read about briefly this morning, but you hadn't thought about Antioch for a long time, I imagine, if you've ever thought about Antioch. Uh, Most famous city you've never heard of, probably the most famous church you've never heard of, uh, because the the church at Antioch is still there. Uh, There's uh, quite a history with that and what that means. Where do I start? Our Lord in the gospel reading just mentioned there's going to be earthquakes. Uh, In the year uh, 363 AD, this is like after the Nicene Creed, but not really because they finish it in 385, but they started in 325. Right in that time, the city of Antioch is leveled by an earthquake. At that time, the city of Antioch is also uh, one of the major epicenters of Christianity in the entire world, along with a few other cities, Ephesus, Rome, Alexandria in Egypt, Jerusalem. Those are the ancient five great churches of the early church, the large influential churches. City is leveled. But then, uh, well, again, it's about the time of the Council of Nicaea. That means you're about the time of uh, emperor and his train. His name's uh, Constantine. And and Constantine, uh, as an emperor, moves the capital from the west to the east, from Rome to a city he founds uh, called Constantinople. Uh, And he begins what then becomes the late Eastern Roman Empire. It's called Byzantium. And Byzantium rebuilds Antioch in its flavor. And so for 300 years, Antioch is part of the great empire of Byzantium. That's a thread we could run on for a long time, but we, that's not even in the story, really. This is just the story of Antioch, and it's a footnote. At <laughs> 637, when they're conquered by the Muslims, footnote. Yeah. Uh, 1200s, they're, uh, 900s, they're set free. Uh, by the Crusades. Christians are still there. The church is still there. Uh, the Ottoman Turks take it back later. Uh, the church is still there to this day. Uh, this day, it is a, what Americans would call a denomination. Though. Let's put parts of part of what makes it difficult. So the Syrian Orthodox Church is the legal heritage of the first Christian church at Antioch. They're still there. Are they still faithful? Well, that's a 2,000-year-long story. Uh, but, but again, let me, let me suggest that they're, they're pretty solid most of the time. The big thrust and fight is that they and the Eastern Orthodox uh, get in a big disagreement over the person of Christ and his two natures. Did I lose it yet? Um, and, and how you decide how his two natures communicate with each other Um, the Syrian Orthodox Church, the Church of Antioch, they're heretics, and the Eastern Orthodox Church, they're Orthodox, they're right, and we in Rome and the West tend to agree with the East on this. Um, But if you talk to the actual Syriac Orthodox Church, you'll find that most of them are not um, Nestorians, which again, it's just, you get lost in the weeds of all of this, okay? Uh, But they're still there. The church didn't die. They need to plant new churches. They're still there. That's Most of what I want you to take out of today, that where this story starts in Antioch, we heard it read a moment ago, we will look at those texts in an overview from the book of Acts, where it starts as a group of Christians who are not Jews culturally, where they're first called Christians, it's still Christianity over there, it's never left. And so, we as American civilization live through a time in which we're not sure whether they're going to persecute us. Kind of looks like it. Uh, we're not sure whether we're going to collapse conquered don't know sometimes kind of looks like it we we don't really know what the future is going to be and then in the midst of it our pews are more empty the kids aren't coming back they're not even getting married at all these days let alone having the next generation can the church survive and that's the running question behind every authority figure in the church all the time every leader Every president, every bishop, they're all dealing with, is the church going to make it? That's what they talk about if you listen. You just have to read the stuff that they send out. They want to send like smiley, nice stuff about mission, right? And about loving your neighbor. But underneath it all is this idea that we have to plant new churches or there won't be any church. That's what's running the show. Plant new churches or there won't be any church. I'm all for planting new churches. I'm all for believing the churches that got planted can stick around for 2,000 years. If they're faithful to the word of God, that God will in fact do that. And that is the story of the church of Antioch. They've been faithful to the word of God from the beginning. Let's debate the the person of Christ thing. You can call me on the phone. We'll talk about that part, but they are still there holding fast the Trinitarian and ancient creed, which American Christianity has already let go of. Most Protestants don't even know the creeds. They still believe in the Trinity for the moment. Give it a hundred years. See what happens. Again, where do I go? with this story. That was like kind of the end of the story, like where we are today. Although I could tell you this fun part that it is the modern city of Antakya and it's in Southeastern Turkey. So if you want to visit you can. It's one of those kind of Bible vacation trips you can take. Not so much against those myself. I don't take them, but I'm not against them. It's great. You see the world. Um, Antakya today is 200,000 people strong, making it significantly bigger than Rockford. And at its peak, it was more like 250,000 strong. But that is like in the ancient world, making it like New York City or, or anything that nothing competes with this except far China, and Rome. Now that all happens is a story I went into maybe too much detail in the first service, but it's such a good story about Alexander the Great and his generals who are appointed to rule in his stead who immediately decide to fight with each other over who gets to be in charge. And in the midst of them fighting with each other over this, a couple other generals who weren't in charge decide to take charge. And after it's all said and done, there's four kingdoms-ish fulfilling the prophecies of the book of Daniel about the time between the end of prophecy and Jesus' coming, by the way. You can read about these four kingdoms, these uh, in the, the wars of the north and the south, or the stuff about the king of the north and south in the latter book of Daniel. We won't do all of that today. But in these four kingdoms, uh, there are two that are the most famous, kings of north and south in Daniel. And I'm gonna tell you their names, okay? So you have the Ptolemaic Empire, Just think of Egypt run by Greeks, right? Egypt's been power forever, and now Egypt's run by Greeks. And you know how cool this story is because Cleopatra gets involved at a certain point. So you've heard the story. It's pretty good. Mark Antony, Julius Caesar. It's it's the kind of stuff that makes for good movies or did before the movies were mostly nonsense, like they are now. Um, Any case, Ptolemaic Empire number two. Number one, the power the power that rules the world that Alexander conquered. That is, it rules Babylon, it rules far Eastern Persia. It's on the border with India, almost conquers India, doesn't quite, but it leaves a group of Greeks who keep a small kingdom inside of India for like 300 years before they get kind of swallowed, right? Uh, This empire that you've never heard of or you've heard me say it once or twice is called the Seleucid Empire. And it is Alexander the Great's Greek empire of Persia from the collapse of Persia to the rise of Rome in 63 BC, one generation or so before our Lord Jesus Christ will be born in Bethlehem. That entire time, all 300 plus years, the capital of the entire civilized world is Antioch because Antioch is a city founded by Seleucus to be one of his two primary cities, and it becomes the more important one over time. The other city called Seleucia, he's a humble guy, Seleucus, right? Started Seleucia, was a harbor, a port city. And then his second city, Antioch, is on the Tyre River. And then between these two cities, you have a small land bridge that unites the entire Silk Road to the entire Mediterranean Sea, Genius. That's my capital, right? This guy knew what he was doing, and Antioch then will remain the Roman capital of Syria as a result of this, because it becomes such a powerful metropolitan, practically Greek city. Herod the Great will be will build a. Uh, it's a hundred. Hold on, let me get this right. Um, larger or as large as a football field in length? No, it's two two thirds of a city block. Okay two-thirds of a city block, a colonnade. So this is a walkway with columns covered by an overpiece where you would be able to kind of walk down the middle of the block, right? We do this sometimes with little paths and trees in the middle of nice neighborhoods. He did this 30 feet wide on a 10-foot high base with stairs going up all around for two-thirds of the block, solid marble. We couldn't even do it if we wanted to. Couldn't even do it. That was at the center of Antioch, where again, the Seleucid dynasty uh, rules over the entire world, more or less. I mean, they don't have a small corner of Turkey, what we call Turkey. They don't have Egypt, and they don't have Greece. They don't ever get to Greece, but they got everything else. Um Oh, well, I think I lost that other side point. that's just kind of a fun one for interest. I'll have to leave that to the side. Oh, this is it. okay. So a uh, fun point of interest is not initially named Antioch when Seleucus founds it. Uh, Antiochus will be, I think, the grandson of Seleucus. Antiochus the first. So over time, the city gets named after Antiochus I or Antiochus II or Antiochus III. I didn't find which one of them controls the change of the name from the previous name that Seleucus had given it, which was Antigonea, which is the name of his wife, which is kind of cool. So he found these two cities, Seleucia and Antigonea, husband and wife, to be the the gem of his empire, and it in fact works, but it becomes known as Antioch because a few of his grandsons get a pretty big head. And in fact, Antioch I gives birth to Antioch II, who gives birth to Antiochus III, who gives birth to a guy named, you've heard it, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. You've heard it. I've said it. He is the emperor of the Seleucid Empire, who will persecute the Jews in Judea so violently that they will rebel under a guy named Judas Maccabeus. All because of this guy who's in the city of Antioch, ruling his empire named Antiochus, who persecutes them. Now, I think that's enough for us to see then when you're in Jerusalem and you have a bunch of Jews believing in Christ, but there's some persecution and they're being scattered to the other Jews in Judea and Galilee But it's going well. The word of God is spreading. Christians are being born again and baptized in that regard. Churches are being founded. And they get word that there's a group of Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews in, in Antioch already. They don't even know how they got there. We find out later some guys from Cyprus went. Who were they? I don't know. But this is like hearing that there's already Christians in Rome. I mean, it's kind of like that. Oh, there's already, no, there's not already a church in Rome. It's only really in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. A little bit in Damascus and then Antioch. So when the apostles hear this, they realize this this is like Jesus conquering the ancient world. All that's left, if they put a church in Antioch that survives this generation and Christianity goes on, no matter what Annas and Caiaphas are trying to do down in Jerusalem to everybody else, they put real churches in Antioch, the only thing left to conquer the world is Rome, which is where the book's going to end with Paul, right? The church in Rome. See, see how this all is like the plan of Jesus, to conquer the world underneath the world without the world even knowing what's going on. Let's trace then some of this story in the text itself. We're gonna start with our text we heard read a little bit ago, Acts chapter 11, verse 19 through 30, where I just kind of summarized it a little bit. Uh, Starting on page 920 of your Pew Bible, um, and I will try not to repeat myself too much this morning uh, for you who heard me say some of this before I started this sermon. Um, This is during the persecution that drives the Christians out of Jerusalem and causes James to write his letter and puts churches in all the synagogues in Judea and Galilee. And then even up towards Caesarea where the first Gentiles are believing verse 19, all that's going on. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia. This is the Canaanites, by the way, the Canaanite city, Tyre, Sidon, and Carthage, all connected to Phoenicia, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus, big island in the middle of the Mediterranean. And there it is, the capital of the world before the new capital, the old capital of the world, Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. This is something that just was happening. It's not like they were like refusing to share, but you don't have intercourse with Gentiles when you're a Jew in the ancient world and you're from Jerusalem. You just don't do it. You maybe shop at the market and you go take a bath. That's that's how they view it. So they're not not really doing what we call outreach. And some people would say, how wrong of them? I'm like, that, that's just really a selfish judgment from of old because what they were doing was talking to anybody who would listen. And I think their time was pretty full. Your day is full usually, right? I imagine if you try to add like an hour of discipling one other person in the Bible to your day, you're you're finished. So if you've got two or three neighbors that are all Jews wanting to learn, when are you going to go to downtown wherever and try to convert the guy with the piercings and the tattoos and the mohawk? You, don't, you don't, won't have time for it. But what they show is that by converting the Jews there, other things just start to happen around them. Yeah, uh, And this is that there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, so guys who are kind of not really from Jerusalem, they're not tied to the Pharisaic cult so much. They're more Jewish by dispersion. That is for, oh, 500 years, the dispersion has put Jewish synagogues all over the ancient world and they became very much like everybody else. You know how American Christians are still Americans? Yeah, it's like that. The Hellenists were Jews who who were still Greeks <laughs> at the end of the day. And they're the ones who, on coming to Antioch, speak to the Hellenists. So there's a community of these Greek-speaking, Greek-thinking, Greek-acting, Greek-talking Jews who are not friends with the Aramaic-speaking, Pharisaic-leaning, Sadducees-supporting Jews. They're they're not buddies, okay? Uh, And yet among them, there's a couple guys and suddenly Christians, Christians, Christians among the Hellenists, okay? Now, jump ahead in the story a little bit. But the Hellenists showed up in the book of Acts a little while ago, back in Jerusalem, this is last week. The first time that St. Paul goes to Jerusalem, he doesn't try to talk to the Jews. He only talks to the Hellenists. They don't want a thing to do with him. Within a couple of days of trying to have him killed, he gets sent home to Tarsus, right? Uh, but now you got a church where the Hellenists want to know. Well, that's where Barnabas comes into the story a little bit. You yeah? uh, were not quite to him. Verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Right, We got a real church of Hellenists in the old capital of the universe. Let's send somebody. Uh, let's send Barnabas. Now, Barnabas has been introduced in the story as well. He's the one who, when nobody would trust Paul, trusted Paul. And then took Paul to Peter and James and got them to be friends. Uh, Barnabas' his name uh, means son of encouragement and it, it's probably his nickname. Like they just all called him son of encouragement because that's all he did was encourage people. Kind of cool, right? I mean, it's gonna tell us, right? He was a good man in a moment. We'll get to that. Uh, when he came there, he saw the grace of God and right? he sees that this is about grace. This is about forgiveness. This is about freedom. He has risen. Alleluia, in this grace you stand. This is poured out by God on you, not because of who you are, but because of who he is and who he is is love. Barnabas saw the grace of God, he was glad. He's like, look at all these Christians, this is amazing. And he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For, like I said, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. I don't want to knock us Lutherans too much, but I've ever heard a a Lutheran pastor say something like, there's no such thing as a good man. Can't be a good man because we're all sinners. Have you heard that? I've said it. And it's right sometimes. But then it's kind of wrong. Like when the Bible says he was a good man, I can't say, well, there's no such thing as a good man. Well, there is. It says he was. What does it mean? Well, he was full of the Holy Spirit of faith. He trusted in the word of God and spoke it out loud. God considers that to be good does that mean Barnabas earned it from his flesh with his works? (laughs) I mean, that's like the stupid question some idiot wants to ask to be a skeptic, right? Of course not. This is who God made him. And everyone rejoiced to know Barnabas because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. Would you want to be such a person? Ask God. He promises to make us like Barnabas, run to the tomb with him, full of the Spirit and faith. So Barnabas, Rather than saying, I can be the senior pastor of the first non-Jewish Christian church that there is, he says, they want Paul. That's what they want. But nobody knows that yet. He goes, he gets Paul, right? Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, verse 26. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So it's in the Greek-speaking world that the word Christ, translated for Messiah, but in Greek, Christ, anointed one, uh, becomes the name not only of Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus the anointed one as king of Israel, but of all the Christians, the Christians, the little Christ, those anointed by him, which, with your Protestant friends, you can get in a nice debate. Is it baptism or is it the Holy Spirit? And as a Lutheran, you can be like, yeah. Yeah. It is, right? Uh, Anointed ones. They're first called Christians in this Greek speaking place where Paul and Barnabas are laboring side by side. More happens. Verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Oh, which Roman emperor after which? Well, let's save that for some other time. It's kind of fun though, pin the tail on who's in charge. Um, but uh, Agabus, one of several prophets. This is a short moment here, but prophecy, healing, speaking in tongues. These miracles were given to the early church. They're there. They're happening. Where are they now? That's the interesting debate. I'll suggest God has refrained from giving them. We don't need them anymore. Yeah. Um, not this kind of miracle, at least. But here it is for telling a famine. Uh, I mean, do you, do you really need a prophet to tell you they're writing on the wall with regard to the American dollar? Do you really need a prophet for that? So we don't have that. Agabus said, this is exactly what's going to happen. A famine. A famine. And what do they do as the church? It's kind of amazing. The disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So the whole congregation learns there's going to be a famine in a couple of years, and they decide, let's save as much money as possible to give away when it happens. I mean, isn't everyone right now preparing for anything, trying to save to keep and, like, prepare to defend? Like, isn't that sort of what prep means, right? If we're prepping for a future that's dangerous, i got to buy a gun. What they did was they stored up to share. What an amazing posture. What deep hearts. What a living God changing us, right? It only happens when the living God changes us. A couple of years later then, verse 30, they did send it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. That's their second visit to Jerusalem. Uh, James gets killed. Peter gets put in prison. They come back uh, in chapter 12 verse uh, 24, I think, let's head over there. Uh, same page, almost 921, the word of God, this is after Herod dies or after Peter escapes, the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark, probably the author of the book of Mark. Uh, But then here it is, Paul and Barnabas come back with a new friend to where? To Antioch. That's where they are. And they're there for quite a while, uh, maybe even uh, 14 years, something like that. You you work a missionary journey into this. But uh, now there were in the church at Antioch a whole lot of things going on. Prophets, we just talked about that. Teachers, Barnabas, we know his name. Simeon, who was called Niger. Be careful where you say that word. Someone might misunderstand you these days, but indeed, it means he was a black man. And that was his nickname because nobody cared the way we've been taught to care these days about hate. Uh, They just you know, thought it was your skin color is your skin color. So uh, they called him Niger. Nigeria still has the name today, by the way. It's a Latin word, just means dark. Um, So you have also Lucius of Cyrene, Who's he? But remember, planters of the church are from Cyrene, and Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. That probably is Herod Agrippa too. Uh, there, so you have you have powerful people, you have influential people, you have people who can tell the future because God says the future to them sometimes. Uh, you have those who are preaching the word of God with uh, with great uh, vigorousness, with faith. And verse two, while they were. Uh, I skipped the name, and Saul. (laughs) Uh, While they were worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, so this group of guys who are praying, all hear God speak to them. And we want to believe this is not in their hearts. This is not a feeling they had. They actually heard God speak. God spoke out loud. And he said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So what does this mean? This means that in the church of Antioch, you got at least four, five, six, seven pastors, maybe more, lots going on. And as those pastors are praying about what to do next, they are told directly by God, take your two most famous guys and kick them out. Kick them out. Get somebody else. Have them preach on Sunday morning and send those two guys out to the nations, out to the Gentiles. And from there, the missionary journeys of Paul, uh, they began. We did a lot of that last week, right? Uh, They all, though, each missionary journey will be a loop northward that's going to come back down into and eventually go to Antioch because it's his home base. Uh, If you do have one of these maps in the pew in front of you, the one that's horizontal, um, you can see, I believe this is his second missionary journey. It is the most diverse, hard-to-keep-in-order missionary journey. He ends up in a lot of places, um, but... Uh, nonetheless, you can kind of see the route he'll take three times give or take, coming back to Antioch each time in the mix of it uh, with with uh, one exception. And that is the final time he goes back to Jerusalem, uh, he does not go to Antioch. Rather Agabus comes from Antioch uh, to to talk to him, right about how he's going to die, basically. Um, But before we get there, we will touch on that again here in a moment. Uh, Go ahead to chapter 14, verse 21. This will be on page 923. And this is about the return from uh, the first journey, right? They just sent him off, Paul and Barnabas together. And this first journey, which was shorter than the one you saw on the map, um, they don't get very far, but they have a lot happen. Um, especially though, the most important thing that they have happen is the conversion of non-Jewish, non-Hellenist people into Christianity. Like true Gentiles are converting all the way along from the farthest away they get from Antioch. Are you ready to be confused? The farthest they get away from Antioch is Antioch. Oops. But it's Antioch and Pisidia, which is like way north up in Northern Turkey. It's kind of like every. Time I used to visit my parents, we'd pass through Mexico, Missouri, right, and I'd have to giggle at myself. Like they say, Mexico, but it's Mexico, right? So Antioch Pisidia is is way up in northern Turkey, um, kind of closer to like Laodicea, which we'll talk about. Um, and then from there uh, they get driven out, they get forced out, and, and Paul is uh, stoned with rocks. Uh, they end up going down to a couple other cities to the south, uh, Derby and Lystra, uh, and and planting churches there. And then to get back home, there's a mountain range. So they're going to go all the way back up to Antioch to get out of the mountain range and get the ship to bring them back home. That's what's going to happen here now, right? So chapter 14, verse 23, they're leaving this area, the center region of Turkey today, Asia minor. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, that's pastors, elders, uh, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they, again, Paul and Barnabas, passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch. Okay, So let all the rest of the names go by, but they're back to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that had been fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. They'll be there for several years, but in the midst of those years uh, and maybe quite quickly after they get back, actually, you have the Jerusalem council. So in the meantime, While Paul is out making converts of Gentiles to Christianity in in Asia Minor, they are having Gentiles become Christian and stay Christian in places like Caesarea, Cornelius' household, where Peter gets sent because of the vision with the pigs in the blanket. Remember the pigs in the blanket, not the hot dogs? Um, So all of that's going on while Paul's off doing this other stuff, and he gets back just in time for the controversy over whether or not these Gentiles have to be circumcised. Because you see, the Hellenists would have already been because they are Jews after all, just Greek-speaking Greek culture Jews, but they're still going to do circumcision. They're still going to keep the Sabbath, right? But now you got these people who aren't circumcised. Does Christianity have to keep all the laws of the old covenant precisely? The Acts 15, Jerusalem Council, Peter, James, and Paul all get up and say, no. And then the whole group's like, you're right, because that would destroy grace. That would go against the point that you're saved. But this isn't about completing something. It's been completed. You want to know what circumcision is really about? It's not just about the removal of the foreskin from the flesh of a little boy. It's about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the removal of the flesh of man's sin through the shedding of his blood and the destruction of his body, which endures and comes forth clean, better, and able to bear new seed. That's you, Christians, for life eternal. That's circumcision. So to say that baptism is like less than that's insane. Baptism is what circumcision pointed to, which again is much more than water, is the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon you by a word that cannot be revoked, claiming you as his own son. So the Jerusalem council, thank God, agrees. Yes? And they send a letter saying, but hey, it doesn't mean you can be evil. Just because you don't have to be circumcised, just because it's about grace, doesn't mean do whatever you want. Rather, instead, please be very concerned to stay away from blood and adultery, and idolatry, and twisted things. And that's the letter that they write. Those, those three, four things. Stay away from blood, adultery, uh, idolatry, and twisted things. I could spend a couple hours just on those four words. Uh, let's just suffice it to say the fifth commandment, the sixth commandment, the first, second, and third commandment, And the Eighth Commandment. I mean, it's right there, actually. If you want to put it together, we could do it after church Ask me, okay? They basically say, keep the commandments, be a good person. All right? So they write that down in a letter. And then the story continues with uh, uh, Acts chapter uh, 15, verse 30 to 40. So at the end of the chapter, uh, that letter is carried by Paul and Barnabas back to, can you guess? Antioch. So, verse 30, when this page 924, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers. Who, to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So the church is not only growing, they're sending They've got so many best great men who, in fact, then turn into not just good men, but preachers that they began sending them out. And in fact, some had come back because of this controversy. The letter resolves the controversy. So they're all like, great, I can go back to where I came from and tell the congregation that are waiting with bated breath. Nope, you don't have to be circumcised. Everyone's going to go, whoo, yeah, real excited to get that news. They head off to do that. Paul and Barnabas remain in Antioch until Paul can't take it anymore. And he's got to go back and visit those churches in Derby and Lystra. While well, he's up in that region, he has a dream, go to Macedonia. They end up in Greece, second journey, and all that stuff. Uh, we'll leave Paul for now um, and, uh, and go to, uh, just to look at Acts 18, verses 18 to 23, where he's going to have another pit stop uh, before his third missionary journey, right? Uh, So uh, the second journey ends with him in Corinth for several years, making tents, working with Priscilla and Achilla. Did I get that wrong? Yes, no, that's correct. Um, uh, After this though, uh, verse 18 of chapter 18, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Achilla. These two Roman wealthy Jewish Christians who then help him in Corinth, they go with him. At Chantreia, he had his hair cut short for he was under a vow, which is him living his Jewish tradition still. Uh, And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. That is, Ananias and Sapphira will say in Ephesus where they'll soon run into a guy named Apollos, if you heard that story. Um, But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So he does what he normally does. And then they don't chase him out. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he he said, no, he declined. Ah, well, he's he's trying to go home. He's trying to go back to Jerusalem, uh, probably for a feast. And then he's trying to go back to Antioch. Although Ephesus is going to be what the third missionary journey, the last one, is, is all about. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus again. Ananias and Sapphira are there as leaders in the church now. And when he had landed at Caesarea, that's the northwest coast of Galilee, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. All right, so he goes to Jerusalem first. And notice how they say he went, uh, he went up and greeted the church. Yeah, he went to Jerusalem and he said a little to the Christians there, and then he went down to Antioch. If you look on a map, it's kind of due north, northeast. Why is it down? Well, because they didn't think so much about maps as about mountains when they talked. <laughs> and so if you go to Jerusalem, you're going up. Well, you're going to walk up for a while. <laughs> and you're going to Antioch from Jerusalem, you're going to go down. It's all down, all the way, right? So that's they go down to Antioch. Um, after spending some time there, verse 23, he departed and went from one place to the next to the regions of Galatia. That's Lystra, Derby, the places where he'd done the first journey. Uh, and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. All right. At that point, Antioch really leaves the story with the exception of Agabus returning again, when he is in uh, uh, Caesarea, about to go down to Jerusalem to be arrested and then sent to Rome, right? Agabus comes from Antioch and is part of the prophecies about this, which itself is interesting. All the prophets are like, so if you go there, You're going to be arrested and it will lead to your death. So don't go. And Paul's every time like, yeah, but I'm going. And well, who's right? Who's wrong, right? Prophecy, you're going to die, don't go. So you stay alive. I'm okay with dying, I'm going to go. (laughs) Who's right, who's wrong? Well, it's kind of the wrong question a little bit. But what you can see is how Paul is running toward the tomb. yeah. And he wants to leave behind in Antioch and in Ephesus and in Corinth and everywhere else he went, including he's been here today, St. Paul Lutheran Church, Rockford, Illinois. He wants all us to run toward the tomb with him. And again, the congregation in Antioch, Not founded by him, but which fed him, let him serve, made him the man he was, and then sent him on the journeys he went on that led to the words that we now get to hear about our Lord Jesus Christ through. He wrote these things so that here now today, you individually and you plural, that is us, remember that we're on this same race, this same, well, run toward the tomb, which turns out to be not so much a marathon, well, it's a marathon, not so much a sprint, but a marathon. And not so much a marathon, but a journey, a journey. And that is the bigger picture here too, right? Running toward the tomb is the journey of walking in this life according to the word of God. So for our closing uh, of the sermon here, we just got about a few minutes left. I wanna go back to that James text that we heard read. So if you can find James in your Bible, go ahead. I'm just gonna use the in myself Uh, because it's going to be faster for me. And just now with all that we just heard about that story, all the people, all the names, all the things that happened, what were they trying to be and do that did all of this? It wasn't like they just showed up and then they just were cool people and everyone wanted to be like them. Rather, they were advocating, proclaiming, and practicing a religion which was completely different from everybody else's religion, which made them look and act quite different. Not so much clothing per se, but how they think, how they talk, how they love, how they rejoice. James gives us a lot of this. Uh, He says hello in verse 1. That's valuable, of course. But verse 2, count it joy, brothers, when you meet trials. Christianity is the religion that has the power not just to endure hurt, but to believe every hurt is good. Not so that you would do it. That's not what I'm saying. You don't hurt others because it's good. But when you're hurt, always it was God the Father who did it through Jesus Christ, his son, perhaps with a demon on a leash that he let bite you for a moment, but never for your ill, ever. Ever always for your good. There's not a single hurt in your life that God does not use for your good. That's Christianity. Changes everything. You can believe differently about your walk when you can see joy in the trials. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. What the trial do it. lets you practice your faith. The more you lift a weight with a muscle, what happens? It gets bigger and stronger. The more you practice trusting Jesus against what you see, guess what? Bigger and stronger. And let this steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Speaking of verses Lutherans can't preach on, right? You're going to be perfect and complete. Oh, yeah, if you mean morally perfect and able to stand on the day of judgment with your own self-justification, then that would be wrong. But why would James say that, especially so early in this letter? Why would he ever say such a stupid thing? Um, what he, what he's saying, again, is that when you trust in Jesus against what you see that is God's complete work on you. And all of eternity will be that first. So paradise is going to be filled with pleasure and joy, but it's not going to be without trust in Jesus. <laughs> it's going to be what trust in Jesus looks like when that's all that there is. Whereas right now what we have is a whole lot of doubt and skepticism, even from our own hearts fighting against this, right? So to be perfect and complete again is just to know that God has made you perfect and complete in Jesus Christ. So if in that you lack wisdom for next verse, right? You don't, I don't understand, pastor, what did you just mean when you said that? Well, ask God and you will be given wisdom. Yeah. every week, dear Jesus, May I have wisdom? And if you want an answer faster, read the Proverbs then, regularly. But ask, it will be given. And then what does that look like a little bit? Well, you gotta put away some stuff. Verse 21, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. And yeah, if I wanna put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness in the world, I'm up a creek without a canoe or a paddle. Uh, I am not going to stop any regime or administration from doing great, wicked things with their powers. I just heard this morning that the state government of Illinois has taken zoning powers out of the hands of the counties, basically for what they call green energy, but sweet deals for those making the votes, you know, with their own companies and that kind of thing, right? So how do I remove all that wickedness? It's not talking about that. It's not talking about other people's wickedness. Remove all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, the place to fight the is in your home. To remove filthiness from your home. It's not talking about cleaning the toilet. Do that too. <laughs> Do that too, right? But it's talking about removing things that are lies from your eyes. Removing things that don't tell the truth from your ears and replacing that with the word of God. The implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Already has, Right? And then the whole bit about being doers of the word rather than hearers only. I mean, it really is best understood with that mirror story that he tells in the middle of it. I mean, every morning you probably look in your mirror. I mean, I I do it and I'm not spending a lot of time on it, but I always do it. I miss the eye eye goober sometimes. My wife will help me out, but I try to look presentable, right? And then I go about my day. Every once in a while, I'll catch myself looking in the mirror, having a conversation, Mm, a thought or two. Maybe I'll even talk out loud at the mirror, right? Um, but no matter how much I do that, as soon as I go away, I don't live uh, looking at myself. Like, I just never see myself, unless I got pictures, I guess, right? But you know, all that I do, I look in the mirror, and I go away, and then it, it really doesn't change anything about me. What matters is what is in inside as I go. And James is saying, put the word of God inside. Rather than just reading the word of God and walking away like you walk away from your mirror. Right? The word of God is not there to be something you look at and then leave. It's there to be something you look at and then it inspires you and you go with it. That's the be doers rather than hearers. And again, uh, where, where, where's the line here? Let's let's look at this one line. Um, yeah. Uh, end of verse 25, you know, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, right? So the point is not that you will do works to save you. It's that if you hear and believe, it's going to change who you are. So care about that. That's good, right? Want to be in the perfect law of liberty. That's the wisdom of the grace in which we stand. Again, he says in verse six of chapter four, then God gives more grace. This is about grace. And this whole conclusion about humbling yourself and mourning and weeping and objecting yourself before God, this is all about the knowledge that there's not a single thing that can hurt you that doesn't help you. There's not a single evil that's here that can overwhelm you that the God who planted every single Christian church from Jerusalem to Antioch to here in Rockford, Illinois, is the one who has established it with his word and his sacraments, which you're about to feast upon. And it is not only capable, but promised to stand firm and make you individual, you, us, us, the church in the world, strong. Strong. And so when he says at the end, Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Don't write that off. He's not saying never laugh. But he is saying don't laugh at the evil. Right? You've heard people say, they did this, that's crazy. They did that, that's crazy. What we should be saying is, they did this, that's evil. They did that, that's evil. And the last thing we should do is laugh about it. We should instead object ourselves before God and pray that he would change it because humble yourselves before the Lord, he will exalt you. That's the promise again. I love James so much because it's not a book about how you should. It's a book about, no, God's gonna. God's gonna. For you, we're out of time. In Jesus' name, amen. Please rise for prayer.